Welcome to Humanity Wired, a podcast that explores the human rights impacts of technology today and tomorrow. I am your host, Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On this podcast, I speak with software engineers, computer scientists, human rights defenders, and policymakers who share the same goal of making technology work for humanity, not against us. There are concerns that artificial intelligence, or AI, poses a grave threat to human rights around the globe. The ways in which AI could positively impact human rights do not receive a lot of attention. Today, we will unpack how AI could help solve human rights problems rather than only cause them. Joining us today is Sharif Al-Sayed Ali, Director of Partnerships for AI for Good at Element AI. Element AI's AI for Good Lab provides dedicated and world-class AI and engineering expertise to organizations that work for the public benefit. Sharif is also co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Human Rights and Technology. Additionally, he's a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Harvard Kennedy School. Previously, he was co-founder and director of Amnesty Tech, leading Amnesty's work on the impact of technology and human rights. Sharif, I'm so glad you're here with us today. I thought we'd go back in time a little bit to your time at Amnesty. So you helped found the tech and human rights team there. What prompted that? I mean, you didn't start out as a tech person, right? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, for a long time, I worked uh, on refugee rights. Uh, and uh, first of all, it was an interest. And for me, uh, I think that, that general interest in freedom of expression online, I think, was uh, uh, also grew out of the fact that... Uh, so I'm, I'm from Egypt originally, and uh, I think with the... Uh, 2011 and everything happening there. Was, uh, I think there, there was quite a lot of uh, personal interest in that. And uh, but really, what prompted it was the um, you know when we heard about the uh, when Snowden came out in 2013 and sort of a lot of the things that people kind of thought were much more sci-fi uh, possibilities uh, were just becoming real. And and sort of that realization that technology is moving faster than the regulation, than standards, than the human rights field, and that we needed to be able to be more proactive about it. Do you feel like we're still really far behind? Because obviously technology has continued to evolve at a really rapid rate. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> the, uh, te- I mean technology, it's, it's really hard to, like for regulation, for laws, for legislation to kind of keep a pace with how technology is evolving. And if you, I mean, if you imagine uh, in the 1960s or 70s, or even the 80s, uh, probably any parliament in the world had, uh, you know, a number of complicated things that it had to deal with in any three or four or five, five year term. And, but you know they can't be count them on one hand, and now we are still struggling with some of the things, that some some things that have to do with technologies that have been around since the nineties. We're talking about um, privacy on, online. We're talking about online abuse and all of these things. Content moderation. We're still struggling with these, let alone dealing with artificial intelligence and bioengineering and uh, and so many other things. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that in a way the challenges are continuing to mount. And yes, as a human rights community, we are coming up with some frameworks and, and obviously thinking about these issues, but it, it seems like we're never making quite enough progress. So on the note of progress, why did you leave Amnesty? You went from Amnesty to the private sector, so that's a big move. What did you think you'd be able to do in this new role that would be exciting and different? Yeah, so um, my last five years spent them uh, predominantly working on the intersection of technology and human rights. 
also part of what I'm doing now, and uh, but really from, from from the other side, perhaps from the technology side of things. So uh, with, with Element AI, we, I mean we are an AI software company, uh, but uh, we have a uh, AI for Good group, which is working with the nonprofit sector, international organizations, public sector to uh, support their work on human rights and environmental protection. We essentially looking at how can we use that transformation technology that that that, that AI is bringing, uh, and make that. Uh, usable, scalable, and available to organizations that may not no- usually have uh, access to it. Uh, so it's it's very exciting, and it's it's very much about the uh, uh, looking at the positive impacts that technology like AI can have, and uh, making sure that these things can happen. And you talked about sort of engaging with organizations that might not think to use this kind of technology. So how do you all conduct outreach? And is it hard? I mean, are you able to get to organizations on the ground versus, let's say, Amnesty, right? Which has more access and maybe some more sophistication around these issues. I think it's hard for organizations. If you if you look at uh, nonprofits, um, often they, they they struggle with resources. I mean, everybody that's right. Governments do, and international organizations do, companies do. But just it's that to a level that that's higher than most. And you know, many organizations are already struggling to keep up with the last generation of technology. So to uh, you know, having digitizing a lot of their systems, having uh, human resources and financial and uh, are up to scratch. And to have that, but also to to kind of make sure that you are delivering your core program or programs work, whether it's development or human rights, something else. And then, again, having people who can work with new technologies like machine learning, that, that becomes uh, much more difficult. And the pool of organizations who are ready for that is probably quite small. I mean, that sounds right to me. And I guess there's always a trade-off for an organization of when they're struggling to do so many things and we're in a time when, frankly, civil society is already under a lot of attack around the world, is the energy you put in, is that energy going to trying to figure out how to exploit new technologies for good? Or is it more trying to protect yourself, let's say, against surveillance and other problems we know civil society is really facing? I mean, I think it's tough. Yeah, it is. And uh, at the same time, it's, you know, you have, um, there's all this wealth of information that's available now that wasn't available before. And it can it can be used positively for human rights protection, promotion, for um, good social causes. It's how do we bridge that gap from organization having very limited resources, the technical expertise being very scarce, and being able to make that bridge that gap. And this is a bit of what we're trying to do there. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's really interesting. I think about like, friends of mine who work in business and so forth, and they're at large businesses with a lot of capacity, and they're running ahead with all sorts of work on AI. But for the nonprofit sector, it's it's really tricky. Help us visualize, like, how can AI be good for human rights? Because we think often about the adverse and negative impacts. So what's the upside? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's the same with any technology, really. And I think uh, AI captures the the imagination for the wrong reasons sometimes. You know, at its heart, it's a technology that means we can do things at scale and at speeds that are not, were not possible before. And we can have a lot of efficiencies. We can increase productivity. And... The same tools that are applied in business, you know, could be adapted to apply or sim- similar ones developed to apply uh, for the work of nonprofits. So for example, uh, imagine you can do very large scale analysis, near real time analysis of satellite imagery, for example, uh, to look for, um, you know, signs for destruction from natural disasters or to look for, uh, understand the impact of conflicts on people uh, or to look for environmental damage. And you do that, something that would take months can take days and doing it at very large scales. Uh, so you can really cut the time that it takes to understand what's happening and to react to it and to have the right kind of response. Take us through an example. We were looking at the work that Elevant AI did with Amnesty, your your former home, on online gender-based abuse, basically, which 
we're a team of women we really care about. Um, but how did that come together? And, and it's just like, what did that process look like? I was very fortunate to be involved in that project from both sides, from this Genesis at Amnesty. So, so that was uh, maybe two, two and a half years ago, and we wanted to tackle that issue very specifically, the uh, abuse against women online. Um, and so we, we did a number of things from the uh, traditional uh, interviews with various women who uh, you know, suffered various forms of abuse over time. We had a uh, polling several countries, so country representative polling to, to kind of understand attitudes and experiences of, of online abuse. And then that last part started from a, a pilot two years ago, when I was still at Amnesty. Uh, and that was a sort of a few weeks working with a data scientist to look at uh, abuse against women uh, members of parliament in the UK. Uh, it had a lot of impact. It created a big conversation in the country, uh, which sort of was a signal for us that maybe we should take that further step. So the, the work that Amnesty and Edelman did together was looking at um, 40 million tweets, basically one year's worth of mention to 780 women journalists and politicians in the US and the UK. Right. And didn't you find that about 7% of the, the tweets they received were abusive or problematic, I think is how you all framed it? Yeah, it was a really interesting project in the sense that the combined uh, digital volunteers to be able to uh, do that analysis of 40, 40 million tweets took a um, representative sample of 300,000 tweets. Uh, that was a crowdsourcing platform called Decoders. So volunteers essentially, instead of for example, signing petitions, what they do is they contribute to human rights research. So were they coding the tweets or what were they doing? They were classifying them. So they were classifying them as abusive, not abusive, what kind of abuse. Uh, and this classification can then be used both for a statistical analysis of all of these mentions to the 780 women, as well as to train uh, a machine learning model that automates this kind of uh, detection. So you're looking at Twitter. Twitter has its own sort of AI system to detect hate speech and violations of their terms of service. Did you all then use the model you developed to kind of test that against what Twitter was detecting? Or what did you do with the AI model that you developed? So uh, with the model, so what's interesting is that so the, uh, the analysis that we published about the uh, amount of abuse uh, was based on uh, the crowdsourcing, so the data that was crowdsourced and, and that, that analysis. The model, we did it more uh, to kind of to show what the possibilities are in that very specific field and also what the limitations are at this stage uh, in the technology development. Uh, there will be a point where it can be, to a high extent, automate a lot of this kind of detection. At the moment, we think that can be used to, for example, to help uh, guide moderators, to help kind of flag some potential content that, that's abusive, uh, but it's not something that can be used by its own. It can support humans. Right. But the the not. quality of the tools is imperfect. Yeah, some AI applications are more, more advanced than others. I think with this specific kind of understanding, uh, the meaning in uh, abuse, yep. social media is, we're not there yet. Right, it's partly because it's so context-specific, I think, right? For machine learning to really see the context in which a statement's made or a word is used is really tough. Of yeah. course, humans aren't always perfect either. Yeah, there's one thing to understand very explicit, swear words or abuse, right. and then things that are much more implicit or contextual. Exactly. Um, so a question about that. It sounds like part of the project rested on having all these volunteers who could look through lots of data and classify it. Are some of the current Element AI projects that you're involved in, do they require as much manpower or woman power? Because uh, that seems potentially prohibitive for, for nonprofits if they don't have Amnesty's volunteer base. 
generally, this is something that everyone sort of working in these kind of things struggled with. And so some of the biggest barriers is having the, the right kind of data and the right kind of, in many cases, the labeled data. And yeah, not many organizations have a, a crowdsourcing platform like Amnesty. It's pretty rare. You know, there's not, not that many of those. But at the same time, I think this is where also there's probably a lot of potential because uh, like online petitions have existed for 20, 25 years. I mean, I'm sure there's some studies on that, but at least even like anecdotally, you know, that it doesn't drive as much sort of passion as it used to. The time when, you know, a post on Instagram can get like tens of thousands of likes in no time <laughs> doesn't carry the same thing anymore. The possibility of people participating, I think, in the development of some of these tools, I think is, it could be something really interesting in terms of activism. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting because we think about youth engagement generally and that some research we did through another initiative suggested that youth are willing to be politically engaged, but their means of acting tends to be online and then that doesn't always have the impact you'd want it to have. So that is intriguing, actually. I mean, Amnesty has had amazing success with the, the Cordless platform. You know, In some projects, nearly 30,000 volunteers just being able to go through large amounts of information that have taken a uh, month or years even, just, just in a matter of weeks. Can you give us some other examples of AI for good being used in the human rights context? This is one of the things where there is a lot of uh, a lot of things being tried, you know, and there are people in different parts of the world and uh, different organizations trying different things, but we're still not at the stage where the sort of the real life examples are still kind of few and far between. The most promising things in my view are, so the kind of things around understanding online sentiment, online abuse, online racism against xenophobia, because we know that th that's been a big issue in a lot of countries uh, for the past few years. And I think the data is there amongst other the things. The data is there. If we understand something better and we understand where it's coming from and what's affecting it, I think this is the first step to, to trying to solve it. And maybe you could also get more of like a context-specific approach to it in terms of how hate speech and, and similar types of speech manifest a particular country, right? Because I think that's one of the real challenges if you're looking at online content is that something that doesn't sound like hate speech to us might be, say, in Sri Lanka. Absolutely. This is also where the complications come in, right? Taking a machine learning route and you're developing a model that, that works in one, one country. It doesn't mean that it's going to work in a different country. Yeah. Even if it's the same uh, language, it'd probably not work as well because just the context is different, the uh, slang is different, all of that. Uh, but getting into completely different languages is a different issue. And it's also the fact that um, in, in a field like language, there is more, generally more, more things already out there in English, for example, or in a few kind of a few kind of languages that are right, the dominant spoken. languages. Then if yeah. you go to yeah, languages in uh, poor countries uh, with uh, less of an AI community, for example, uh, and with uh, smaller populations, there's going to be less uh, scientific basis to to base work on. All right, so this isn't going to solve all of our problems. Well, Not I mean, yet. <laughs> no, I mean, I, th I don't think technology is ever going to solve all of our problems. But it does yeah. sound like, particularly when we think about some of the countries that have had. Yeah real-life violence based on hate speech, right? They're actually countries that have smaller populations with language limitations, at least some of them. I'm thinking, I guess, of Myanmar and Sri Lanka particularly. Yeah, and these aren't insurmountable problems. It means it's going to take more effort and right. more time. Uh, but it's definitely doable to the extent that, uh, you know, we can have tools that, that help us, that support uh, us sort of trying to combat uh, hate and trying to, to, to overcome that and understand it better. So you talked about one use case, which is sort of online speech and particularly abusive speech and so forth. What are some other applications you think present real opportunities? One very big opportunity is we have uh, with using Earth observation data, so satellite data and so on, uh, to be able to better understand the planet, uh, better understand what's happening, and do it at the scale and, and the speed that means we can 
we can take action very quickly. So whether it's, it's related to people being affected by conflict, by natural disaster, whether it's related to, to climate change, deforestation, uh, the environment, it's, I think w- what we have now is that we have more satellite data than we ever had, at higher quality than we ever had, and that's increasing over time. Uh, and we have the tools, the analytical tools, to be able to make sense of them. And, and if we can bring all of that together and bring it together with, in a way that means that organizations working to try and solve all these problems you know, are able to use it and able to devise, not just do what they do quicker, but even devise new ways of tackling these problems that maybe the previous kind of analysis and data they had access to wouldn't have been allowed them to do. That's probably the biggest uh, potential, that kind of locked potential that, that, that needs to be unlocked. I keep wondering if there's some way to better predict, let's say, conflict. And and I guess that could be from satellite data, but also you would think from other indicators. But maybe that's still, at this point, wishful thinking. I know there are some efforts to do that. I think that the crisis conflict prediction is, uh, it could be really important. It's difficult to do. Uh, I guess it's it's easier to to see things after they happen. It's kind of, you have the hindsight, but it's always a bit harder to know when something is going to pass that threshold of getting into conflicts or not. Yeah, and I guess you could look at historical conflicts, except there's probably not enough. The data is sort of hard to unlock because it's in books and... And it's not online. It's not easily accessible, maybe. And also very complex as well. Yes. I mean, the kind of all the different interactions of politics and economics and like uh, military power and all of that. And then, uh, you know, add to that, you know, the, probably the hardest uh, one of all to predict is just the personal personalities involved, you know, and whether someone true. Uh, d- a, decides in one occasion. A charismatic leader who decides to lead a genocide. Or, or, to, say, or to step back and, and say, no, we, we shouldn't That's uh, true. get there. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and these things are incredibly hard to measure. I guess thinking through how these partnerships can come together, not just Element AI, but governments, others, how do we create more of an enabling environment to help civil society access new technological tools that would enable them to do their jobs better? Any thoughts on that? I think one of the biggest blockers probably for civil society is uh, very few organizations would be able to develop kind of their own uh, data science, uh, machine learning expertise in-house, right? And it's uh, uh, and you could you can't expect nonprofit, even the bigger, biggest ones, to be able to do that uh, generally. I think the key thing is just how do you have the, the resources within organizations to be able to interact with that world, to be able to interact with data scientists, with, with uh, AI scientists, to be able to have the knowledge to know where the opportunities are, both within the organization, but also externally, and be able to put the two together. And then, which I think is maybe the answer to everything but uh, as well, but you have to have the leadership support, right? You have to have the leadership saying, yeah, it's okay to take a risk. It's okay to try something new. Uh, because without that environment, I think it becomes very difficult to, uh, to really, if, if you're just like one person and always pushing against a certain way of doing things, uh, so it's kind of both the open mind and that ability internally to connect uh, the technology world with the whatever the, the, the organization is doing. And do you see most of this work, kind of AI for good work, is it going to be carried out on a for-profit basis, on a break-even basis, as philanthropy? Like, how is that likely to really work in practice? And how does it work for Element AI? No, I think generally, uh, you know, companies, institutions that have this, uh, whether it's expertise, other kind of technology expertise, or even any other expertise that can be of value and contribute to the work that human rights, environmental uh, development organizations are doing, 
we should be doing that. We should be putting some of our time, some of our resources into that. What you contribute to make society better, what you contribute to make uh, the planet better, the planet more livable, eventually is going to come back to the benefit of everyone, including to the companies who did that, uh, even if that's directly, even if that's just creating a healthier society, a more um, just society, a, a kind of a healthier planet. Uh, so I think the value is, is you know, the, the intangible value there is, is, is really great. And I think... Uh, Maybe we don't think of it in terms of money, but uh, but in terms of uh, contribution back to society and to the planet, it's fantastic. Right. Or maybe it's the long-term operating environment of companies, right? Both from an environmental perspective and then also what kind of world you want to operate in, one with rule of law and human rights or one without it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as people, we, we, we're not great at thinking long-term, right? It doesn't yeah. matter if we work in uh, where we work. We, that, that's not our strongest suit. And, uh, but, but we know what happens when we ignore things over the long time, right? We know what happens when we ignore, you know, understanding how, how we should do content moderation well on the internet. Uh, we know what happens when we ignore carbon emissions. And, and at some point it comes back and we feel the pain. But, uh, but sometimes, you know, if we can make the effort of, of investing early on in, in solutions, then uh, we'll be better off in the long term. Yeah, and I would imagine for the AI community, it's important also because AI does have some really complicated human rights implications that it also demonstrates its positive impacts. I would think from a business perspective, that actually might be important in the long run. Yeah, and it's, it's important to foster and to earn the trust in, in technology and the, the trust in AI, whether in AI or something else. But we are at a moment where there is... Uh, People are unsure about technology. You know, there's a lot of mistrust, and and I think the way to, to 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 kind of overcome that is to to regain that trust, to earn it, and by doing that, that means we can take advantage of the things that the technologies offer us, the things that the ways that can do our lives better, the ways that can make our lives better, they can they can help us solve some problems. And the worst thing to be in would be is uh, we do not use the opportunities because we couldn't keep the trust. Yeah. And I think I think one other thing to add is just we've obviously been talking about sort of the potential good uses of AI. And because of the other work you're doing with the World Economic Forum and so forth, that you also think about the fact I helped write the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. And one thing we thought a lot about was the idea that there's no offsets. You don't get to do philanthropy on the side to make up for the fact that like you're a terrible company. And I know you've done work on sort of the safeguards that companies should have in place in general for AI, no matter what what it's being used for. And I just think that's really important. You know, we're talking about the uh, living in a world that's where human rights are respected, where the environment is protected, and that's that benefits all of us. It's really important that we have the the frameworks that, that means that that these things can happen, that human rights are respected. Of course, we have all the human rights treaties. We have the UN guiding principles. And and the big question we have now is like, how, how do we go from these principles, which are generally applicable and actually have you know, amazingly have kind of survived the test of time of uh, things even going back to 1948 that still make sense today. But it's like, how do we keep on applying them and translating them to the way the world is working, including the way technology is developing? And what does it actually mean in practice? And how do, how do we implement that? I think that's the bridge that we still need to uh, still need to cross. Yeah, yeah. And I was looking at the principles the World Economic Forum put out on human rights and AI. And and it's broadly applicable, right, about fairness and, and transparency and so forth. And then I think what gets and, and that's all really important and hard itself. And then there's when you think about the specific applications then of AI, right, then there's all sorts of other challenges that arise, right, that are kind of sector specific or application specific. And it seems to me we still have a lot of work to do on that. 
you know, I'm optimistic about that. I think uh, heading in the right direction. I think there's community uh, that cares about the impact of technology and human rights and, and kind of wants wants to make that work. Uh, is uh, in the last few years has uh, you know have we've really uh, you know starting you know looking at broad principles and broad applications and uh, which is a starting point. And I think, but that, but I see that as as one of the first steps. Sure. And where we need to get to now is uh, okay. What does that mean in practice and and having that very these kind of very clear um, ways of dealing with the challenges that I think will never be static in the sense that um, as the technology develops uh, as different technologies develop these the way these uh, standards are applied is going to have to change and the way we kind of apply them in practice is going to have to change and evolve over time yeah no I agree AI for good is really important but it doesn't make up for AI that's not implemented well and does not have safeguards in place, right? That we need both pieces. We need AI for good because human rights are not in a great place in the world right now, but we also just need to make sure all those safeguards and checks are there as we develop AI for any purpose. And I think that there's something that I find, um, like I find when we talk about AI and human rights or uh, any new technology and human rights generally, that it's both distinct and also completely not distinct at the same time uh, in that it's like every other area where whether it's a business, it's a, it's a government, it's a private entity, you know, they have obligations and, and duties to, for, for human rights and they need to be applied and, you know, the people behind, you know, the people behind the institutions, the institutions themselves. And that's the way in which it's, it's no different. And at the end of the day, it's about the people behind the technology. It's about the people behind the actions. Uh, and then it's different because the, the, the mechanics of how to make that work essentially are different because they are context specific, they are technology specific. And sometimes they're specific to the value chain and so forth as well, right? Which looks different for different sectors and different technologies. I don't, I'd be curious as your, to your take on this, but it's always seemed to me that the technology field has been more open to conversations about human rights than maybe some sectors were. That that's been like, it's a community of people that tend to be interested in conversations about ethics and human rights in a way that is, I think, helpful. One thing I, I, you know, I remember uh, sort of my, my the, the first sort of scientific uh, machine learning conference I went to was in uh, uh, in Canada last year. And uh, it, it was really amazing. And just the, the uh, so people from all sorts of companies and academic institutions and uh, researchers and um, and just the level of interest in, in ethics and human rights was just amazing, you know, and the level of, of uh, you know, people caring and wanted to make sure that uh, the, 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 the science that they're doing, the technology that they're building, that they, they, are, they are doing good, that they are being used ethically and well, uh, is amazing. And it's very, very encouraging. Yeah, I agree. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the intersection of technology and human rights, visit the Human Rights Initiative webpage at csis.org. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to help other people find us too.